to the JNMP podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to both the editors and the patient's choice for this month's JNMP. First of all, a conversation with Professor Michael Hornberger and the role of the cerebellum in neurodegeneration, followed by a conversation with Dr. Esther Coutinho talking about autoantibodies and pregnancy. First up, I'm joined by Professor Michael Hornberger from the Norwich Medical School, University of East Anglia, and we're going to be talking about this month's editor's choice, the cerebellum in neurodegeneration. So Michael, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. What's the role of the cerebellum being traditionally seen as, particularly when thinking about neurodegenerative diseases? Yes, traditionally the cerebellum has been always more seen to be narrow related to motor function so in particular coordination of our movement. So for neurodegenerative conditions, in particular symptoms such as ataxia, were really very much strongly linked to the cerebellum and uh, dysfunctions in the cerebellum. And has recent evidence sort of challenged this notion of the cerebellum being purely motor function? Yes, well, there has been actually now quite a long time evidence since uh, Jeremy Schmarman really published his seminal papers, which are quite a few years back already, where he said that cognitive function might be also related to the cerebellum. He did most of his work in stroke patients, but more recently, this has been also taken up by the new degenerative community. And this is really an interesting concept that so far people have not associated actually the cerebellum with cognitive or neuropsychiatric symptoms. I mean, your paper discusses that the cerebellar cortical connectivity in particular may have implications for neurodegeneration. Could you perhaps expand on that for us? Yes, because of course of the nature of neurodegenerative conditions, they are progressive. And um, this is really in a kind of an interesting, it's different therefore to stroke patients who have, might have a, a lesion in the cerebellum, which is usually one of events. But with the progressive patients, it's an interesting uh, effect that we don't know yet how the links, because we know the cerebellum is very strongly linked to different cortical areas. And because of the progressive nature of neurodegenerative conditions, we don't know whether the cortical dysfunction affects the cerebellum or cerebellar dysfunction affects actually the cortex. So could this be simply a valerian degeneration happening, or is there something much more complex happening, which at the moment we don't know. But of course, it has strong implications on neurodegeneration where the focus for such a long time has been actually on the cortical regions and not so much on the cerebellum. Absolutely. So, I mean, your paper systematically reviewed the literature as well as performing a, a meta-analysis of grey matter atrophy in the cerebellum across neurodegeneration. So what did you find? Did you find sort of distinct groups um, across neurodegenerative diseases? Yeah, so what we found was, uh, as you said already, there are specific actually changes for different neurodegenerative conditions. However, they also cluster together, which we found quite interesting in that sense that we found neurodegenerative conditions who have usually more cognitive or neuropsychiatric features might actually show similar regions in the cerebellum sector. They might differ slightly, but they show largely the same regions which have been already associated with cognitive neuropsychiatric symptoms. And other neurodegenerative conditions, which are usually more motor, show more motor symptomology, uh, actually show more the cerebellar regions, which are involved in the motor processing. I mean, does this fly in the face of what people believe the cerebellum to be acting on? I mean, I, I noticed from your paper that you mentioned, for example, that Alzheimer's disease, as most people believe that the cerebellum is in fact left untouched usually. Is that, does this information challenge that? 
Absolutely. Um, and it really, I guess people have really not taken the cerebellum in that sense into account for checking symptoms or disease progression as it's usually been seen to be intact. And the main reason was that people were looking more at symptoms like ataxia, which of course Alzheimer's disease patients wouldn't have ataxia generally. So Therefore, the kind of cerebellum was completely discounted from this, which is a bit ironic because we know, of course, anatomically that the cerebellum is a huge structure and, in fact, has, according to the anatomist, more neurons than the whole of the cortex. So it's quite ironic that the region, which is very densely packed with neuronal power and must be doing something in terms of the normal um, brain function, is, has been completely disregarded in neurodegeneration. I mean, you you touched on it just a bit then, but I suppose the ALS um, FTD continuum can provide quite a unique um, insight into these sorts of diseases, particularly with um, symptoms, uh, sort of motor symptoms versus cognitive symptoms. And your your paper mentions this idea of the dysmetria of thought hypothesis. And I just wondered if you could talk us through that a little bit more. Yes, so this is, I guess, this is again a, a theory which was put forward by Jeremy Schmarman, which is really kind of that thought processes. If you think about the cerebellum really as a large computing machine, which kind of refines our movement and coordination, but as well our thoughts. So it creates like a feedback loop for the cortical regions. And therefore, if the feedback loop fails, it might create actually kind of a dysfunction, not only in terms of People show this coordination deficit for motor, but also for our thoughts, that our thoughts might overshoot or undershoot. And of course, people in psychiatric literature have looked at this for quite a long time, in particular people developing delusions and having this you know, an overshooting of your kind of behavior, which they have sometimes been linked with the cerebellum. Of course, for ALS FTD, it's particularly interesting. And a few years back, of course, the uh, C9 or 72 mutation was discovered. And Atrophy studies at the first at the time, particularly by Jennifer Whitworth, showed that the cerebellum was quite affected in uh, showed quite a lot of atrophy in these C9 cases. Now we showed afterwards that also sporadic actually ALS and STD cases show quite uh, a bit of cerebellar atrophy. The interesting fact, of course, is that the C9 cases and ALS FTD patients they can sometimes present with these delusional symptoms which um, it's not yet clear whether they can be really linked to the cerebellar atrophy, but it's, it would definitely fit into the dysmetria of thought kind of concept by Jeremy Schwarman. Did you find it surprising? I mean, your pa- again, people can read your paper to read the um, in-depth findings, but did you find it surprising not to find any cerebellar involvement in Parkinson's disease? I mean, I thought that was quite an interesting finding. Yes, I think very surprising because in particular because we published actually data showing that uh, Parkinson's patients show actually cerebellar dysfunction, which we actually link to some of the hallucinations you sometimes see in Parkinson's disease patients. Again, linkage of the cerebellum of being creating a feedback loop for cortical regions really was shown there. I think it really brings to light one problem we had actually with our meta-analysis is that uh, many, many papers and many people before us, they have not reported really their cerebellar changes in the studies they've conducted. So we found many, many studies where we could see that cerebellar atrophy was shown on the figures of the studies, but people did not report them in the tables, and therefore we could not actually use the results because we needed the coordinates for our meta-analysis. 
And really this shows that maybe the Parkinson's finding is just a null result because there were not enough sufficient studies we could actually find in this regard, which is a real pity. And I think that's what I say these days when I give talks about the cerebellum. I say, if you take one message home from the cerebellum, it's really just please report your cerebellar coordinates because at the moment, many people don't do that. So for the future, actually, these findings might still change quite significantly. Absolutely. So message, take home message is stop ignoring the cerebellum. Please, if you can, that would be great. Are there any other future implications of these findings, Michael, things that you'd like the listeners to, to take home with them? Yeah, I think the next step is really to uh, to figure out how the cortical and cerebellar um, regions interact and whether in the neurodegenerative conditions, which one comes first or do they co-occur or do for some conditions cerebellum is first affected for some of the cortical regions. The other part is, of course, to um, we think which could have implications as well for sometimes PET referencing still uses the cerebellum as the kind of a normal region against which PET, cortical PET values are referenced against, which uh, we would, of course, caution that with our findings to say that if the cerebellum is affected, it might actually affect your, your PET reference as well. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Michael. I've appreciated it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Professor Michael Hornberger from the Norwich Medical School, University of East Anglia. And we were talking about his recent paper in the JNMP, which you can download now for free on jnmp.bmj.com. I'm joined by Dr. Esther Cortino from the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom. And we're going to be talking about her recent paper looking at autoantibodies during pregnancy and its potential link to disorders of psychological development. Esther, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. My first question is about maternal immunity and, and what role that plays um, when thinking about fetal brain development. Well, yes, we know now that uh, the mother's immune system is quite important during neurodevelopment. And we know this from several lines of evidence from both epidemiological data and in vitro and in vivo data. So epidemiological studies have shown that there is an increased risk of neurodevelopmental disorders if the mother had, for instance, an infectious disease during pregnancy or if the mother herself has an autoimmune disease. And this points to an important role of the mother's immune system. And this data is complemented by many studies using animal models, for instance. In these studies, activation of the maternal immune system, either by an infectious agent or inflammatory molecules, can lead to changes in the neurodevelopment. So, of course, maternal antibodies against fetal brain proteins have also been implicated, and that is what my study shows. And specifically when thinking about the etiology of neurodevelopmental disorders and the role of autoantibodies, can you just expand on that point a little bit for us? So we know that during pregnancy, the mother transfers antibodies to the fetus uh, through a very efficient process. And of course, this is very useful for the neonate because he is born with immunity against a lot of pathogens he will encounter. However, if the mother has in circulation antibodies that target proteins expressed in the fetus, this can cause disease. Perhaps the best well-known disease is the one that occurs when mother and fetus have incompatible blood groups. So the question here is whether maternal antibodies targeting proteins expressed in the fetus brain can also lead to neurodevelopmental disorders. This has been studied for a long time and they have been long postulated to occur, but 
specific directly pathogenic antibodies have only been described very recently. I see. And of course, this quite neatly follows up into your study. Tell us a bit about the cohort that you and fellow authors looked at and the major findings that came out of that. Yes, we had access to a fantastic, unique cohort of gestational samples. And this occurred through our collaborators in Denmark, in the the Danish uh, biobank. So we had access to this collection of samples from pregnant women in the 90s. And through the Danish national registers, we had access to the clinical diagnosis from the children from that gestation. And of course, this is incredible source of information. And what we found by screening this cohort with antibody assays developed in our lab was that mothers of children with a diagnosis of mental retardation and other disorders of psychological development were nearly five times more likely to have antibodies targeting a protein called Casper 2 or contactin-associated protein 2 than the control mothers. You mentioned then Casper 2 being the autoantibody that um, particularly came up in your study. Is that a particularly obvious candidate, something that you would think would be linked to fetal brain development? Yes, Casper 2 is, is a very interesting, uh, an ideal candidate for the target of a maternal antibody-mediated neurodevelopmental disorder. So we know Casper 2 is a crucial protein during neurodevelopment, and we know this because mutations or other disruptions of the gene encoding this protein have been found in patients with several neurodevelopmental disorders. And this is further supported by in vitro and in vivo studies that show that Casper 2 is involved in important processes that occur during neurodevelopment, like neuronal migration, stabilization of dendritic spines, and other neurodevelopmental processes. So this is quite important. And adding to this, Casper 2 antibodies are believed to be pathogenic in adult patients with a variety of neurological syndromes. So all this fits into being a very important protein during neurodevelopment. You've now identified the Casper 2 as the sort of obvious protein um, autoantibody candidate. What's the next steps and I suppose how would you advise your listeners to interpret the findings of your study? This is, this is still an exploratory study so we, we need to follow several venues of research before we give specific indications for our day-to-day practice. First we need to assess whether these antibodies are directly causing the pathology or if they're just bystanders. And one way of doing this is creating an animal model of maternal to fetal transfer. And indeed, we have done this. That study was just published this week. We, we show that the injection of Casper 2 antibodies into a mouse dam leads to permanent behavioral and histological sequelae in the offspring. But next, we need to validate this association in other human cohorts and further explore the clinical phenotype of these mothers and children so we can better recognize which patients benefit from screening for this antibody. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the JNMP podcast and talking to me about your work. Thank you. So this is Dr. Esther Coutinho from the University of Oxford, and you've been listening to the JNNP podcast for September. And thank you very much all for listening. Mm-hmm.